Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Oh, what a summer. <sighs> Who could have guessed we would meet and fall for each other? I know. I'll never forget the parties on the beach. The clam bakes and the wine that just rushed to our heads. Falling asleep under the stars. And we got to see a giant squid kill somebody. Kraken. You're right. It was a kraken good time. No, I meant it was a kraken. It wasn't a squid. You're so deep. Sometimes I don't understand what you say. I can't believe the summer is almost over. I wonder if our feelings will last in the fall. They'll come back every time we hear the song of the summer. Oh, you're totally right. 841, that's the moment I saw you. But I could be a couple of minutes off because the Timex I bought from Amazon is a piece Wait, of... Wait, what song is that? Timex by Sebastian and the Panda Monkeys. That sounds indie. I don't even know that song. How could it be the song of the summer? It just is. No, the song of the summer is... I got eye bags, eye bags, from hanging out until two. I got eye bags from doing clubs with you. I got eye bags, somebody called Dr. Oz so he can... Wait, that is not the song of the summer. But it is, so... Eye bags by Gilligan XCX. I hate that song. You can't get away from it. It grates on my nerves. Oh, like how the way you chew really bothers me. How about the way you say, say what, when you don't know what to say? Oh, well, you let the dog lick your mouth, and then you expect to make out with me. How about when you put the yogurt container back with almost no yogurt in it? Say what? Ha, case closed. We shouldn't fight, okay. These precious days of summer are slipping by. Let's make summer memories to last through September. I was wrong. Your song is the song of the summer. What I don't get is why nobody wants to sit near us now. We'll figure that out while you listen to the scramble. And now his last song of the summer was Camp Town Races, Colin McEnroe. Welcome to the Monday Scramble. Uh, In a little while, you're going to hear a conversation about why there isn't a song of the summer. We do a show every year about what's going to be the song of the summer. We did that show, and the song of the summer has failed to materialize. We have some other surprises uh, for you as the show goes along here. But we're going to begin with an article, a discussion of an article that did cause um, a lot of discussion over the weekend. And that was a uh, lead article in The New York Times. Uh, on working conditions at Amazon, what it's like to work uh, at Amazon. We're going to talk uh, to Peter Kafka, senior editor for Media at Recode, about this and also about some other stuff uh, that kind of leads naturally into our second segment uh, about the song of the summer and disruption in the music business and stuff like that. But first of all, Peter Kafka, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So um, the way that, uh, although we should say that uh, in the discussion of the Amazon article in the New York Times, 
you know, we, people have tended to emphasize the negative. So there was a lot of negative stuff in there. Almost sounded like, you know, maybe PETA should be getting involved. Uh, you know, that this were like sort of like, you know, animal crates and, and unfair uh, pig conditions and farms or something. It sounded that bad. These long hours and and snooping uh, bosses and and back channels where you could communicate uh, about people in a negative way and this kind of sense of paranoia. But I mean, also in that article is the notion that Amazon also some people thrive in this environment and it's one of the ways that Amazon innovates. I mean, in a way, I think the article has been unfairly characterized as completely negative by people who never read the whole thing. Oh, I think that's one of the fascinating things about the reaction to this piece is, you know, I'm someone who paid attention to the tech world. and I think in the tech world, this is sort of a bit of a Rorschach test for how you view the workplace. So there are a bunch of people, uh, some of them very prominent, uh, Mark Andreessen, uh, prominent venture capitalist at Costello, until recently was the CEO of Twitter, uh, who came out and said statements that basically said something along the lines of, you know, I don't think what they're doing at, at Amazon is that bad, and this article is probably an exaggeration, but being in a high-pressure, high-intensity workplace is a good thing, not a bad thing. So there's definitely a group of people who look at what Amazon is doing, and even even the, the Times article warts and all and say, life is difficult, and if you want to do something great, you have to work hard, and this is not that unusual. I think right. for a lot of other people, they look at this and say, wow, this really looks like an awful place to work. Yeah. I mean, I was not in, in, entirely surprised by this article. We had done a show recently about dogs, and we wound up talking to somebody who'd worked uh, in the Amazon, the new campus of Amazon, which is supposedly very dog-friendly uh, in a way that didn't make her entirely happy. But she, what she said was it seemed as though the dog-friendliness was in some ways a substitute for letting people go home to their dogs, that the, the work schedule there was so crushing – so bruising, so apt to involve nights and weekends that it kind of, from a from a less charitable point of view, it made sense to let people have access to their dogs because they weren't going to be able to get home and feed them and let them poop anyway. Well, again, and this is one of the things that where I think people who know a bit about some of these other technology companies say, you know, there, there, there's some of these things that where Amazon is being taken to task that are that, that you also see at other tech companies, or if you don't see the other tech companies, they still exist just in a different way. For instance. Times article says, well, it's Google and Facebook, they give free food, and at Amazon, they don't give free food. The reason they give free food at Google and Facebook, and by the way, at media companies like Bloomberg and lots of startups, is so people don't leave the office. They want you to stay there and eat there, and, and they're perfectly happy to give you a 5 or $12 uh, lunch if it means they keep you working for an extra hour. It's not an uncommon practice. So again, it sort of depends on what lens you're looking at this thing with. And and I think similarly, I, and I hold no brief for or against Amazon, but some of the stuff that was uh, described there in terms of sort of ways that feedback can happen could be good communication strategies or could be ways for people to stab each other in the back and, and have everybody in a constant state of watchfulness and paranoia. And it was sort of hard to tell reading the article which one of those was more true. They're not mutually exclusive, right? If you set up all these channels so that people can communicate in different ways and maybe communicate about their superiors and stuff like that, you're going to get some backstabbing. You also may get some very necessary and vital forms of communication. You might, and again, you know, we can we can do this sort of all day long. Various forms of this exist in many other companies, uh, even ones that don't have formal versions of this. Right? There's, by the way, there's backstabbing and politicking at many companies in many offices. Sometimes there isn't a formal channel for you; you have to improvise one on your own. And if you've got any, you know, and uh, you know, go back and watch Office Space. There's, there's, there's people have been trying to sort of figure out the best way to sort of improve the workspace and to get better feedback. And, and sometimes it turns into sort of parody things like. 
360 reviews where your underlings are supposed to review you and your boss is supposed to review you and you review you. Uh, you know, you can be much more charitable and say, yeah, this is another version of Amazon trying to hack this and trying to figure out a better way to do it. Clearly, the, the, the authors of the Times article think that on the whole, it's a negative place to work. They include plenty of to-be-sure paragraphs and quotes from, from various Amazon and current and former employees saying, no, this is great, it's good. But clearly, they, they don't think it's good. Um, and I think one of the reasons this story is resonating overall is that it speaks both to the way people might feel about Amazon and technology companies broadly, uh, but even beyond that, just sort of the way the modern workplace works. Even if you're not an engineer at Amazon, you probably have a cell phone and you probably may be expected to answer that cell phone during what were considered off hours. And so when you hear anecdotes about Amazon employees who work for four days straight, uh, who are berated for going on vacation with core uh, internet uh, service, that might not be exactly what you do at work, but you might. it might also sound somewhat familiar. And I think that's the reason this article really struck a chord. Yeah, and it may be that what Amazon did successfully is codify a lot of things that are pretty informal in a lot of environments. There are lots of jobs where you wind up feeling subtly guilty and not in a way that's really uh, um, uh, said explicitly, uh, but you wind up feeling guilty if you go home at 10 p.m. on Saturday night or if you take that vacation and people can't reach you or, or whatever it is. There are a lot of very high-pressure work environments where you might be made to feel guilty in a subtle way. It seems like what Amazon does is spell some of that stuff out. And then there, it seems like there's also this kind of overlay of constant communication. I mean, you you cite this thing from Jeff Bezos who says, well, you know, I don't recognize any of this stuff. It doesn't sound like the place that I know and the caring Amazonians I work with. But wow, if there are any things like that, I want to know about it. So here's an email from me directly that you can email me. Yeah, and, yeah go ahead. Yeah, no, I was wondering how that email to Jeff was going to work if you go to complain. <laughs> i got to say, well, you know, and, I, and I, I, I'm sure that Jeff Bezos is sincere in what he's saying. That said, um, you know, there are a lot of people who say this is familiar to them. Mm -hmm. uh, and what was very striking to me was there was something in between the, the time story and the Bezos response. Uh, An Amazon employee wrote a very long point-by-point -point counterpoint that he published on LinkedIn in the post. He said he wasn't speaking on behalf of Amazon. It was just himself. He'd been there for 18 months. He thought the Times article was completely bunk. Um, and at one point, he quotes a, a high-ranking Amazon executive, who sure sounds like Jeff Bezos because he's talking about himself and his company. Mm -hmm. He says, Amazon used to burn people to the ground, um, <laughs> but we don't do that anymore. You shouldn't be burning people into the ground. Um, and when you say we used to burn people into the ground, that's not something you should do. That makes it sound like it is a company you recognize. Maybe it doesn't exist today, but it might have existed not that long ago. Um, and if it existed not that long ago, then it probably does belong around in some way today. And, and so I think that even though Jeff Bezos may not want that company to exist in some form, I think he has acknowledged that there was a version of it that existed. Yeah, I read that same thing on LinkedIn, and I, I thought it was a little bit disorganized uh, in some of its claims. For example, there's a thing in the Times article about, I think it starts with these 14 principles or whatever that you get on a laminated card or, card or something like that. And then it says, it says, when quizzed days later, those with perfect st scores earn a virtual reward proclaiming, I'm peculiar, the company's proud phrase for overturning workplace conventions. I mean, first of all, I found that a very confusing statement that somehow or other, if you absorbed, memorized, and, and embraced and internalized the company's principles, that you'd get an award for being peculiar and overturning their conventions. It kind of doesn't make any sense at all. But anyway, the, on the LinkedIn piece, the guy writes back, this is complete and utter reader bait. No one is quizzed. 
The yeah. quiz is totally 100% yeah, no, voluntary. There were, there were a lot of responses in that piece where I sort of fighting a fight that doesn't exist. There's other points where he's saying, look, I've seen no sign of it. Right. Um, which is much more substantive. Again, he's one person out of 150,000. Uh, you know, that said, he's there. His name is on the record. Uh, the Times says they talked to 100 people, many of whom don't work there anymore. Uh, I mean, one of the other things I think about this article that's interesting is that uh, a certain amount of time ago, maybe 10, maybe definitely 20 years ago, Times wrote this story and published it. It'd be treated as fact, um, and that that would sort of that would be the record. And now we're in an era where, especially when it comes to stories about technology, but lots of other things as well, lots of people have a voice. Lots of people can challenge uh, uh, the Times. You know, again, this is an engineer or an engineering manager at LinkedIn. And his words are given the same credence as two of their most respected reporters uh, put in six months of work. And to me, that's a very interesting sort of state about media, which I don't know if that's a discussion you wanted to have. But it, 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 the fact that this is a story that you can challenge is interesting to me as well. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, there are, and the challenges can come from a lot of different directions. One of the authors of this story, David Streetfeld, is a, a reporter I know pretty well from his work anyway. He's a really good reporter. Uh, my guess is he's, I mean, I, I've learned sometimes not to entirely trust everything the New York Times says as gospel, but I do tend to trust his reporting. I think he's really good. Uh, but yeah, I mean, sure, I think it's going to be challenged every which way. But I just want to go back to that quiz thing because I just thought it was so yeah. so bizarre. The guy uh, wrote, writes back. And, and says, uh, this is complete and utter reader bait. No one is quizzed. The quiz is totally 100% voluntary. For that matter, no one will mention it again, aside from new higher orientation. I didn't take the quiz for three weeks, and I admit it was because I was new, and I wanted a phone tool icon, which you apparently get as some kind of like rat pressing a food bar reward or something for doing something on the quiz. But I, I thought, well, then don't say no one is quizzed. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, my, 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 and it was a disorganized piece. To me, the, the most telling part of his response was it was multiple times in the story. The Times says Amazon is a particularly bad place to work for women, which is not unusual mm-hmm. uh, in technology companies, uh, and I guess companies in general. But says, you know, women basically you are, are basically sort of discouraged from having children. Again, not super unusual. Uh, but his response to all that is science is gender neutral. So it's a very sort of engineering, binary way of looking at the world. I don't see it in my world, therefore it doesn't exist. Also, it's not logical for it to exist, therefore it doesn't exist. And so I'm sure that this this is a heartfelt response by this uh, Amazon engineer, but I think you take it with big chunks of salt. Right. So, Peter Kafka, um, in the minutes that we have left here, I also wanted to talk about another Recode piece that you did, uh, and that was uh, leads into the conversation we'll be having in the second segment about the lack of the, a song of the summer. So we know that there's been tremendous disruption of the music industry. Some of it, in fact, has come from Amazon. Uh, one of the things that you wrote about recently was a memo by Dave Goldberg, who died last year, uh, who was at that point head of SurveyMonkey, but had tried to do some other things uh, to help well, one of the labels Sony look at its future, and I guess this this became available partly because or entirely because of the Sony hack. But so tell us about this. What was his vision, and and, and how might it have been useful at a time like this? So Dave Goldberg uh, got his start in the music business, uh, and I'll spare you the, the the resume. You can look it up yourself. But for years, he had been interested in the idea of transforming a music company, and the music companies have been racked ever since Napster showed up and all music became available for free and people stopped paying for it, saying, look, there's still a way to get value out of these music companies, but they're going about it the wrong way. They're sort of making incremental changes. What they really need to do is give up, is change, radically change the way they do business, um, and not just by cutting costs, but by basically stopping selling new music. 
music label still spend a lot of money to sign artists like Taylor Swift or even Beck, et cetera. They spend a ton of money to promote them, and they're, they're in, and they sell albums, and their albums don't sell, don't sell very well. Goldberg said, we should stop doing this. We should essentially sort of take the existing catalog of music these companies out and figure out ways to sell those efficiently digitally. Basically, it's almost sort of the, the Columbia, the time-life approach to selling music, which is take old songs and, and just keep selling them over and over again. That sounds profoundly unsexy and maybe disappointing if you're a big fan of, of, of new music. Uh, but Goldberg wasn't saying don't, re- don't do new music at all, just basically stop spending a lot of money on it. Uh, and again, you should read the memo. Uh, you can read it on uh, WikiLeaks site or you can read it on my site. It lays out a very persuasive case that says, look, what would happen is overall revenue for these music companies would go down because you'd be selling less new music. But you'd make a lot more money. You'd be much more profitable um, because selling old music is much more profitable than, than selling new music. And that's what people want to listen to. And eventually you end up with a much more profitable company. It's very provocative. He's pitched that idea to multiple uh, record labels. No one's taken up on it. Uh, but last summer he was proposing that to uh, Michael Litton, who runs Sony Entertainment. It does seem as though, well, I mean, I don't know, this is all sort of coincides. Last week the Columbia Record Club announced yep. it was officially filing for bankruptcy. That is kind of a model for selling old music, but maybe not in, in as streamlined a way as he was talking about. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, since 19, the, since the late night, the music business peaked in the late 90s. Not because music was best in the late 90s, it's because that was the peak of the CD era. That was the peak of buying bundles of music for $15. That model has been blown up. You don't have to pay for music at all. You can steal it. You can buy songs for a dollar, um, or you can now get streaming music for either free or $10 a month. The music industry still really hasn't adapted to that new marketplace. They're still sort of in the CD era, even though CD sales are obviously on the decline. Uh, and what Dave was saying was, look, you've got to give that up. Um, it's a, it's you know, going and finding new ways to package new music is, is a money losing proposition. We should stop doing it. Uh, Dave was a music fan, but he thought this was a sort of an intellectual puzzle he could solve. All right, Peter Kafka, thank you for uh, exploring two different intellectual puzzles with us. Uh, Peter Kafka from Recode, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to have a pretty lively discussion about what happened to that whole idea of the song of the summer. Why didn't it happen this year? Is it climate change? We'll be back. So at the beginning of the summer, we did a show. We do it every year. We do a show on what is going to be the song of the summer. And just to remind everybody, the song of the summer is not your favorite song in the summer. It's also not your favorite song from summer's past. It's not by the Love and Spoonful. It's not anything like that. It's the song that's going to define the particular summer. So what's going to be the song that defines for everybody? Not for you, but for everybody, the summer of 2015. This will be the song that people dance to at weddings. It'll be the song that your mother dances to, and she kind of knows it, uh, and you'll kind of know it. You won't necessarily love it, but you will know it as the thing that pretty much flags the summer of 2015 in your head. So that's the premise. We tackle it every year. This year we brought Rod in for the first year first year ever, the highest priced talent we could get. Brendan J. Sullivan, New York-based DJ and author of Rivington, was ours, Lady Gaga, the Lower East Side, and the prime of our lives. And I think it's fair to say that during that show, 
I, I sound like I'm being sort of retroactively defensive, but I think it's fair to say that during that show, we were aware of the fact that there just wasn't a really obvious lock the way there is some years. The way, I mean, it was almost boring the Carly Rae Jepsen year. There was nothing to talk about. And even Fancy pretty much put its feet down very fast uh, last year. We were sort of aware that there wasn't, there wasn't even a neck-and-neck kind of race like Blurred Lines and Get Lucky was one summer. There wasn't anything like that. We were a little nervous. Um, but we sort of tried to make a decision about it as best we could. And then it turns out, well, we pick up, we don't actually pick up the Daily Beast, we look at it online, and Kevin Fallon, senior entertainment reporter, writes, you know, there really isn't a song of the summer this year. What went wrong? How come there's not a song of the summer? So we're bringing Brendan J. Sullivan back. We're bringing Kevin uh, Fallon into our midst for the first time. And we're going to talk about whether or not this is the, the very unusual thing of a summer fail, a summer where there's no song of the summer. So Kevin Fallon, Tell us why you don't think there's a song in the summer. Well, you, you sort of touched on it earlier where you know, it's realize. typically very obvious what the song is. It's the the song that you can't walk into a grocery store, go to a pool party, turn on the radio without hearing. And it has a domination to the extent that it's not just, you know, kids who listen to pop radio who are aware of it. It's, you know, everyone from your grandma to your mom to your to your you know young niece knows it, um, and this year there you know were maybe a dozen different songs that made a little splash here and there, but there was no fancy, there was no call me maybe, there was no song that literally every single person had stuck in their head the entire season. All right, before I go to Brendan, Kevin, if I pushed you on it a little bit and said, you know, if you really had to choose, you know, is there one that you think maybe almost ascended to that level? Yeah, so I was thinking, like, if I had to choose one, what would it be? And I think it would be one of two songs. It would either be um, Fetty Wap's Trap Queen. Um, but but what I said in the piece is that, you know, I, I highly doubt that someone's mother is singing along to a song about cooking crack. Um you know, all summer long. So I, I think that's not exactly a contender. But um, let's actually the- just to help out. Um, let's play a little bit of that right now. Uh, and actually, Tucker Ives' mother is going to sing along with it. Seventeen thirty I'm like, hey, what's up? Hello. Since you're pretty ass, soon as you came in the door. I just want to chill, got a sack for us to roll. Married to the money, introduced her to my stove. Showed her how to whip and now she remixing for low. She my track queen, let her hit the bando. And then the, the, the second song is one that has sort of caught on towards the end of the summer, which is Weekends Can't Feel My Face. Um, but, you know, when you think of a song of the summer, you think of something that you... Can't escape by July Fourth, and this song hasn't really peaked until you know recent weeks. So I think the fact that it wasn't a dominating track the entire season means that it can't really be called the song of the summer. Oh, so, okay, so Brendan J. Sullivan. Meanwhile, you're DJing uh, par- parties where the the best and the brightest, the fanciest uh, people go, the richest people go. So you're right on the cutting edge of this. You also may be in a little bit of a, a, a bubble. You're a little bit hipper than most of us. Um, h- how is this shaping up to you? H- how is how does Kevin? Kevin's thesis seem to you? Kevin's thesis, it pains me to say, is I believe it's correct. There is no song other than Trap Queen where you can throw it on to an empty dance floor and fill that room right then. If people hear 1738 and they go, it's time to dance. Even though it's not really a dancey song, it's not summery, it's not appropriate for children to listen to. But I still don't think we have our song of the summer. 
So can we just talk a little bit about uh, the one that you mentioned, Kevin, uh, Can't Feel My Face? I think this is a really interesting example because it meets, I think, some of Brendan's criteria, including the fact that, I mean, I think the op- let's we'll hear the opening of that song right now. Here we go. And I know she'll be the death of me, at least we'll both be numb. And she'll always get the best of me, the worst is yet to come. But at least we'll both be beautiful and stay forever young. This I know. This I know. She told me don't worry about it. She told me don't worry no more. We both know we can. Um, so the opening is distinctive enough to catch your ear. You, you, if you're at a club, you know what song's about to be played. There's a hook that really does kind of work. But one thing that I learned this year from doing the show uh, that we did earlier this year is that lyrics do somewhat matter. You know, and this is really a song about drugs, really. I mean, it seems initially like maybe a song about uh, a suicide pact or some kind of highly destructive relationship with another person. But it's really a song in which drugs are personified. And, Kevin, I'm wondering, ultimately, in terms of getting one's mother out on the dance floor, singing along as, uh, you know, as some wedding DJ plays it, is is that going to work? I think absolutely not. And I think that's why it hasn't had the, you know, omnipresence that you expect from a song of the summer. I think mostly what's missing from all of these contenders we're mentioning is, you know, a certain level of cheesiness that we sort of embrace in the summer, whether, you know, we're not saying that, you know, LMFAO's Sexy and I Know It or Katy Perry's California Girls or even Carly Rae Jepsen's Call Me Maybe are great songs, but they're silly, guilty pleasures that you sort of expect and crave in the summer and i don't think that the weekend's track or fetty wops track qualifies as that certainly earlier in the summer we really wanted uh shut up and dance with me to become the song of the summer because we all agreed it was cheesy and kids could like it old people could like it i think we want can't feel my face to be that song because it is a little cheesy but it's the song of the summer needs a little push and that push comes from the fact that people are already listening to it and they have crossover fans. So Can't Feel My Face and even Fetty Wap, because of their drug references, because they're a little, you know, off off the track on the edge there, it's you can't you don't want your kids to sing that on the way to school. <laughs> no, ideally not. Well, let me make a case for a song I don't even really like very much. But I think if there's a song of the summer, it's Bad Blood. It's the Taylor Swift uh, song with uh, Kendrick Lamar on it, at least in terms of a song that that kind of, quote, everybody knows, unquote, and that where the hook is kind of in anybody's head. If you sing the first couple of notes of the hook, uh, you know, your, your mother might sing it back to you. Tell me, uh, Brendan, I'll start with you. Tell me why I'm wrong about that. I'm not saying you're wrong, but here's why we want it to be this song of the summer. Because even for a Taylor Swift song, this is a little off her track. This is almost dubstepy. It's a little dark for Taylor. It's like in your summer, you're supposed to do something different. You're supposed to take a different turn because you don't have everybody at school or work or et cetera telling you what you should and shouldn't be doing at all times. Bad Blood feels like a different song. If if this were her debut song, we would think this is exactly what she was about. Right. So, uh, Kevin, w- what about you? Why why doesn't Bad Love rise to the lo- level, Bad Blood, excuse me, rise to the level of a song of this summer, one that people will kind of, once again, use as a mental flag to plant in the memories of this summer? Right. So, so you know, another, uh, you know, thesis I had when I was writing this piece is just that the songs this year that were given as options aren't 
that good. You know, Taylor Swift has had some really great pop crossover tracks in the past few years. And Bad Blood, when you, can, when you, you know, listen to it next to those songs, is really weak in comparison. So I think that we can't, we, I think we can't justify calling, you know, one of Taylor Swift's weakest singles a song of the summer. Um, and, you know, I also mentioned the fact that, you know, yes, we have the song by Taylor Swift, but for the, the most part, our big pop um, superstars sat the summer out. There was no new Beyonce track, no new Katy Perry track, no no Black Eyed Peas, um, no Usher. Um, all we really had as options from our from our you know summer stalwart, stalwarts were this you know mediocre Taylor Swift song, and then Rihanna's uh, "Bitch Better Have My Money," which again we, we we talked about content earlier with Fetty Wap and The Weeknd, and I don't think that you know a song with a title like that is is primed to go over well with with younger listeners and their well, mothers. Kevin, one of the things we were discussing before, I mean, my thesis is that the song of the summer is like your summer romance and you, your summer romance isn't the time that like someone at work finally pays attention to you it's like you're out of town someone you don't know kind of comes and sweeps you off your feet and that's why song of the summer isn't the place where Katy perry lets us hear her new single it's the place where we find our next Katy perry right i was going to bring up that that sullivan rule uh, at least in terms of, and it certainly applies to to rihanna and to uh taylor swift let's play a little bit of the taylor swift song just for the fifth or sixth uh, five or six people who have not heard it and let's get the hook planted in your head so your day is going to be ruined and play a little bit right now Then the question becomes, does it matter that there's no song? If there's no song of the summer, does it matter? And Brendan, I'll start with you on this. There's, there's some way in which we do exult in the idea of a, a song of the summer. We might have ambivalent attitudes about it. We may eventually relish the destruction of the artist who gave it to us. Uh, you know, bad things may happen later on. But, but I think we kind of want there to be one. I mean, do you feel, as somebody who's pretty invested in the music business, um, kind of bad that there isn't one? Yes, and I like I, at the same time where I'm saying I almost don't want to say there is no song of the summer. Everything we say about the song of the summer, it's sort of the height of where we are as people, and it is the height of music at the time. The fact that there isn't a song of the summer right now tell, says to me that more about this summer, 2015, than it does about the music industry and what people are listening to. It, the same way that earlier in the summer we were, we didn't really have a grasp on what the song of the summer was, we also didn't really feel like the summer had begun yet. You know, it was raining one day, it was too cold, and the the summer weather, the excitement of all, hadn't really taken off yet. So I'm I'm I feel like having no song of the summer is our song of the summer. <laughs> uh, Kevin, do you buy that uh, thesis? I yeah, I absolutely do. I I think that you know, for better or worse, when you hear a song like Fancy or you hear Call Me Maybe, it brings back memories of whatever was going on that summer when it was inescapable. And the fact that we don't have one right now means that, you know, two or three years from now, we're, we're, we're sort of losing a, a cue for memories. Um, you know, we, we like, the we like to listen. The thing is, though, that uh, a song of the summer, it should be the only exciting thing going on. Like, we, we love summer, but we have to keep in mind that summer is ultimately a very boring enterprise. It's You sit on the beach and you watch water. There's not the constant flow of work and school and things like that. That's a good thing in my mind. But the, the Song of the Summer should like bring some excitement to you if you're in a car trip with your parents and you're bored in the backseat. And I just don't know how much time we spend being bored in the backseat. We've got an election. We've got our constant drip of news feeds happening. 
there's not so much of the just sit somewhere and where it's too hot to be comfortable. We're sort of like in a region where it's not that we're comfortable or uncomfortable at any given time, but we're not wowed so much anymore. So, the, Kevin Fallon, this is the argument. This is sort of is the air conditioning destri- uh, industry destroying summer itself? So that you know, it used to be that work would slow down. You'd get into a little bit more of a siesta type culture where nothing happened from one to six, which is still the case in places like Spain, and and that the summer really kind of had a different pace. But we've just you know read this Amazon article about how people at Amazon have to work all the time, and that we're all kind of Amazonians a little bit. We're all on these jobs that don't slow down in the ways that Brendan is suggesting. I mean, maybe what we're seeing here is musical climate change, where this is just the first summer of many summers where there won't be a definitive song of the summer. I, I think that there's definitely ability to the argument, but I hope it's not true. I think we all we all deserve to take a little bit of a break during the summer. And, you know, we all deserve to have that one big song to soundtrack that break. You know, it, it, this might be a thing where we're looking at it too closely. I remember early in, or in the year, uh, Neil Pollock, a comedy writer, had commented saying, like, geez, how did we ever survive Thanksgiving without all of these Thanksgiving survival, you know, listicles? It's possible that because we're just sitting here being like, it's summer, it's time to be relevant again and talk about the song of the summer. What is it going to be? What's it going to be? It might just be going over our heads in the air, radio waves as we It can't possibly be the case that we've flyspecked this too much. No, no, you're <laughs> kidding me. No, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's absolutely going to be, no matter what, three months from now, it's going to be cold and a song's going to come on the radio and we're all going to go, I mean, currently right now, I am in the North Fork of Long Island in a bed and breakfast and some song I'm listening to this weekend, I'm going to say, geez, man, three months ago, I was on the phone with Colin and Kevin this song reminds me of that beautiful afternoon, and I got on the ferry, and we had a great time. There were lobster rolls. It's going to happen. We just might be, you know, forcing Well, it happened again. last year. We talked about this. It happened last year with All About That Bass. You know, I mean, that, that's a song that, that came up in August, and we yeah. sort of we broke up with Fancy mm-hmm. and started going out with Megan Trainer, and then her voice got wrecked, so it also proves that she fits into the curse of the song of the summer artist theory. Uh, as well. So, um, listen, we've been talking to Kevin uh, Fallon, a senior enter- entertainment reporter at the Daily Beast, and of course, the indispensable Brendan J. Sullivan, New York based DJ, author of Rivington Was Ours, uh, Lady Gaga, The Lower East Side, and The Prime of Our Lives. I'm here to tell you that right now, there's a boy band that you've never heard of. They're called Next in Line. They're meeting with their producer right now. They're recording the song that's going to be the song of the summer. Let's, we'll hear that recording session as we go out. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks. One, two, three, four, go. I want to have a food court love. So meet me at the Wetzel's Pretzels, girl. I'm coming at you like a hot dog on a stick. So be my Panda Express. Stop, stop, stop. I've got blood coming out of my ears. I like Amazon's new feature that delivers stuff to me that I don't realize I want yet. Look, my new tree thermometer is here. Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Allison Ehrenreich and Hallie St. Germain. It's her last day today. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Taylor Swift. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff feeling each other's faces, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, we go deep inside the mind of Bill Finch. And now, back to Colin. The Faith Middleton Show staff feeling each other's faces, images, seems to have um, 
struck Tucker Ives in a very unpleasant way. The problem is they can't feel their own faces. And by the way, that song would be a great jingle for Dr. Jerry Rosenfeld. Roosevelt, I can't feel my face. Um, I'm just putting that out there. All right. So since we've been in kind of a music theme here so far, we thought we would continue, particularly because there's this great feature uh, at uh, NPR.org called The Good Listener. And it's it's more about really the act of listening, the act of being a fan, than it is about people who actually create the music. And I always feel that's kind of an undercovered area anyway, the act of being a fan. I was at a Lyle Lovett concert in Bridgeport last Wednesday, Lyle Lovett and his large band. And you know there were there were the people <laughs> there were the people who were like calling out the songs they want to hear, which never really works anyway. But also, I don't know, maybe it was Bridgeport or what I'm not really sure exactly what this was. There it they there was a threatening quality to their tone. I and mean, it wasn't just one person, too. People would just yell a song out like if they didn't get it, they were prepared to engage in reprisals or something. I just it was making me more nervous than festive. Anyway, that's not what this segment is about. We're going to talk to Stephen Thompson here from The Good Listener uh, very specifically about concert etiquette, about a specific a bit of concert etiquette. But as we go along here, since we have his expertise available, we're live here in the afternoon. If you're listening live, you can call in at 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You may offer, question, offer opinions or give questions to us about concert etiquette. We're also prepared to talk about the 2015 Green Bay Packers, but it seems unlikely that uh, you're going to call up about that. You can also tweet us at WNPR Colin, where our tweet master, Greg Hill, is in the house, as they say. So, Stephen Thompson, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. We're very excited to have you. So this can't, comes from the NPR Music mailbag, this particular question. You, this all began with a communication from one, Stephanie B., who, who, who talked about going to the kind of concerts where people don't sit down for the entire time, everybody's standing up, and, you know, what happens if you have this big, tall person? In her case, it was a big, tall person who was also wide, and his head uh, was the approximate dimensions of a cereal box. That's like a, a trend in concerts anyways. People do wear cereal boxes, I think, to certain sure, concerts now. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, you and I are both uh, Green Bay Packer fans, so, you know, the <laughs> cheese head hats uh, as well. Those really obstruct views. Yeah, I know. I don't wear cheese. I, I, I will wear them occasionally to a classical music concert, but not to it's rock like and roll shows. Family reunions. Family anything like that, I wear my cheese head. So, um, but this raises an interesting question, because if you're the tall person, you know, you want to see the hold steady up as close as anybody else. You want to be vomited on by your former, your fellow hold steady fans the way anybody else is. You don't want to be like way leaning against the back wall, right? Well, it was interesting because because uh, the the person who wrote in the letter was was basically saying like what obligation do tall people have to the people around them at a concert you know and and you know she was sort of saying like I wanted to I wanted to just banish this person from from all concerts forever and ever because they were they were blocking my view and that was uh, you know that was somehow discourteous and I kind of tried to stake a little bit of middle ground like you know obviously. You can't resent a tall person for being tall. That's ridiculous any more than you can resent, you know, anybody for any stupid reason. But at the same time, like I, I'm a medium tall person and I, I will t- constantly kind of turn around probably more than I should to make sure that I'm not blocking the view of a shorter person who might be standing behind me. And as much as possible, like all of these rules of concert etiquette 
to me, just just revolve around the idea of do no harm. You know, don't don't stand there vaping like we can tell you're vaping. You know, don't you know, like minimize the amount of, uh, the, you know, of holding up the cell phone and you know obstructing people's view that way. Just kind of try to be aware of your surroundings and don't mess with other people's experience. And if you're tall, that means, you know, ideally don't situate yourself right in the front row. If you know you if you can hang back and still have an un- unobstructed view, try to do that. Stand near walls in front of pillars if you can. And what's amazing about this particular column is it has just sparked an incredible amount of rage <laughs> that I wasn't that I wasn't quite ready for. And and some of them I I, I really uh, sympathize with. You know, people who are writing in and basically saying I felt like your tone was. They didn't use the phrase uh, height shaming, but that's what I was effectively being accused of. Like, I, you know, I also have a right to to view a concert and I'm, you know, I tried it. I do my best, but I'm tall. What am I supposed to do? And, and, you know, and but then there were an enormous number of people. You, you also had short, you know, shorter people saying, you know. Oh, my God, you know, this happens to me all the time. Somebody steps in front of me. But then there were all these people who 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 wrote in. They they tweeted me. My my Twitter feed has been blowing up with angry, tall people who are like, I bought a ticket. I have a right to be there to hell with you. (laughs) And it was just like, I'm entitled to block people's view and I'm somehow mad about it. So it's it's been an it's been an interesting experience uh, this particular column. It certainly opens the door for a Randy Newman follow-up song because maybe <laughs> tall people really are the problem. Maybe they're the uh uh the angry people that that need to be demonized. Well, to me, what's you know, it is sort of true that the answer that you provide contains another answer, which is that it it it's almost inevitably your experience of having somebody tall in front of you is going to be tinctured by that person's attitude about being tall. So, for example, if our science reporter Patrick Scahill is very tall in front of you and is in front of you at a concert, first of all, it'll be just evident from his body language that he's uh, ashamed of being tall and, and, <laughs> doesn't, and doesn't want to be, at least in this particular environment, he's ashamed of being caught tall. He doesn't want to, you know, you can sort of tell if the person is kind of aware of the kind of thing that you're talking about. And then there's this whole other group of people who are tall and oblivious and holding their brewski up in the air, you know, as they sway to the, you know. and Wearing, and, wearing a 10-gallon hat to the right, Wild Love yeah, concert. Right. So that kind of person um, is, you know, is going to be a bigger problem because you know. Although, you know, it did strike me that this was a strange venue in which to talk about this. It seems to me that the standing up only concert, I mean, if we're at least we're talking about the kind of standing up only concert where there's a sort of a floor, you know, and, and people kind of mill around and stuff like that. That's your one opportunity to concert to get away from somebody who's bothering you in one yeah, way or another. And I think the letter writer was saying, like, this was a crowded show. And, and yeah, I mean, the, the, the best thing you can do in any concert etiquette situation if you're bothered by something is try to get to a different part of the room and, you know, don't instigate some giant conflict. It's been very interesting, the number of very tall people who have written to me and said, sometimes I stand in the back of the room like really trying to stay out of the way and people still give me the death glare like I'm in their way. Like, what am I supposed to do? And I hugely, hugely sympathize with that. Yeah, you may have tapped into something here that goes well beyond the concert experience. I'm not quite sure exactly what it is, but there clearly is. There's height height rage. Yeah, height height rage. Height rage and height shaming. I'm just, did you have any idea there was such a thing as height shaming? 
You know, I I should have uh, I should have guessed that there's a, a a groundswell of rage percolating under any any given topic. But you know, I'm not surprised because even people, as I've found writing an advice column about music, people have very very strong feelings about their surroundings at concerts, just the way people have very strong feelings about their surroundings at movie theaters, people who are driven to to rage by people texting at movies or talking at movies. So those same issues, uh, you know, come into come into play at concerts a lot. So if I if I was surprised, I probably should not have been. Yeah, as we go along here, uh, but if you do have a question or a comment about concert etiquette, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. I would assume that the thing that you got the most mail about prior to having stepped in this particular hornet's nest um, <laughs> is is just people with people who are recording the concert in some way, people yeah. who are videoing the concert. You know, and, and, and I have to say it bothers me a little bit, and I, as I look at it, I think, why are you here? You know, right. I mean, why why are you looking at this concert through the back of your phone? Uh, why, why aren't you looking at the concert just through your eyeballs? That would seem to be the point of being here as opposed to creating a crappy, tinny recording and just kind of drawing our attention away from the experience. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot to be said on that topic, and I've 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 tried to approach it from several different angles, but you know, including including situations where somebody was bothered by a performer who kept hectoring the audience, like put your phones away, God, you know, just enjoy the experience, <laughs> and how frustrating it can be for performers to stare out at an ocean of of gleaming phones. I you know I. There's there's a much larger issue in play there about how we experience live events and and you know spend more time documenting our experiences than we spend living them, and you know I'm I'm a big proponent as much as possible of like get your you know I don't have a problem with anybody hoisting up a phone and and taking a picture to to you know tweet to their friends or text to their friends like look I'm here and then putting your phone away and then trying to just like breathe in the concert experience as much as possible because it's virtually impossible, at least in my experience, to attach to a performance emotionally if I'm also trying to document it. Yeah, I mean, and I I don't even mind the 30-second video clip that they want. Mm-hmm. For, if that's what they need to put up on Facebook to prove that they, they were at Wilco, you know, I mean, if that's what they need, that's fine. You know, it, it really, it's more when it becomes for them some kind of substitute to actually being present there. I mean, the reason that you're there in the first place is to see a concert with a whole bunch of like-minded people, people who are kind of more or less, you hope, on the same plane of existence as you are at the concert. And it is distracting to have people who are, who are they're interposing a whole bunch of, of other things. Yeah, it's amazing. We do this concert series in the NPR music office called Tiny Desk Concerts, where we have our favorite bands come in and perform like three or four song sets. And we have three high definition cameras pointed at the performer. We release it as a free video and audio download. We document this show as well as it can possibly be documented. You have to pay nothing and it looks gorgeous. And we still have to tell people like, put your phone, like you do do not have to shoot videos of this on your phone. We are shooting high definition video and making it available for free. You have absolutely nothing to gain by, by shooting this. But that impulse to 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 document is you know it's it's I mean certainly emblematic of of modern life in some way but but you know as much as possible be aware of the people around you and try not to impose on them. Let's grab a quick call from Jim in Hartford. Hi Jim, you're on the air. Hello. 
So I was listening to the show, and I was thinking back to uh, a concert I was at a couple months ago up at uh, Mass Mocha, the Solid Sounds Festival with Wilco. And I'm out on the field on the Friday night performance, which Wilco was actually doing uh, apparently for the first time ever in their career, an all-acoustic set. And they had just started. They were two or three numbers into it. And there were a couple of guys standing in front of me. Uh, we were all standing. Um, and they're like in their mid-20s maybe. And they were just talking. Oh. And after about the third number, I tapped one of the guys on the shoulder, and he turned around and looked at me, and I just put my finger up to my lips, you know, to kind of say, quiet, please. And the other guy turned to me, and he wasn't aggressive or challenging, but he just simply said, like he was explaining something so basic to me, hey, man, it's a concert. People are going to talk. And I said to him, no, it's a concert. People are trying to listen to music. You've got the whole planet to talk, uh, you know, but we've all bought tickets to listen to music. And he just looked at me like, wow, you just don't get a concert, do you? And then they, they kind of walked away. They moved about 10 feet away in the crowd. They were not, uh, you know, like I said, it wasn't aggressive or anything. Um, and they were respectful, but it just, I thought it was a generational thing at that point. You know, like I'm, I'm a lot older than those guys are, but it would never occur to me to go to a concert with, uh, with the thought that I'm going to talk to somebody at the concert while the band is playing. Well, Stevens, I don't know if it's a generational thing. Some of it's an outdoor thing too, right? When mm -hmm. people are outdoors, even if they're outside the shed or something, the, suddenly <laughs> the, the rules break down a little bit or, or they, they loosen up a little bit. I think that's true. That that also um, you get much more instances involving smoking and and you know like like people do tend to assume that like whatever they're doing is going to dissipate into the sky uh, when they're in an outdoor setting. But I, you know, and, and I would definitely push back against the idea that it's generational. I, I think there are incredibly inconsiderate people of all generations, just as there are are you know very considerate people of all generations. I just think it's it's. You know, it's it's a larger. If you're going to point to a larger societal issue, it's it's an issue of of entitlement and of, you know, not being, you know, of of, of just putting your own needs ahead of the people around you. And and all I you know encourage in in the column and in general is just be as you know be as aware as possible of your surroundings. Absolutely, and I certainly have been at the concert recently where the two guys who like Steely Dan brought their wives who don't. So they oh. they thought it would be a good time to talk. Steely Dan's concerts are very different now. If you, I mean, Dick Sky is usually about seventeen minutes to pee. So if they leave the place, <laughs> they they come back and they've missed three songs. Thanks so much, Stephen Thompson. Go Packers. Go Pack. Go. Thank you, Colin. We look good in the preseason, sort of. How's the weather up there, huh? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Cloudy with a chance of rain. Ah, <sighs> oh, that was... <sighs> okay, I asked for that. 